Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Natural Curiosity Project, the place for stories that matter. I recently had a conversation with Brad Borkin, the co-author of two books that have had a big impact on me. The first one is called Audacious Goals, Remarkable Results, How an Explorer, an Engineer, and a Statesman Shaped Our Modern World. The second book is called When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme Decision-Making Lessons from the Antarctic. Brad is a great researcher and a great storyteller, and what I love about both of the books is that you can read them from a variety of mindsets. Both of them tell stories of extraordinary accomplishment and adventure, but both books also contain important, rich lessons in leadership. Brad and I chatted for a long time, and our conversation wandered all over the landscape. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on your on your show. Uh, who's Brad Borkin? Well, I think I'm a person that has a great interest in decision-making and how people make decisions and how people uh, think about decision-making and what they can learn from people who lived in the past who achieved great things in their lives and what we can learn from them for decision-making. They weren't always perfect decision-makers, but they were people from whom we can look at and say, what did they do right? What did they do wrong? So if I was to look at my career, my interests, all the things from childhood onwards, it was always a focus on, gee, how do people make these decisions? How, what, what motivates people to do brave and courageous things? And, and, and where does all this lead to? And, and what's it all mean? Tell me a little bit about your background in terms, you know, kind of before you hit your professional pace. Uh, how did you get here? A bit of background. And I have obviously I have an American accent. But I live in London and I've lived, lived here for 30 years. So whenever I, wherever I go, people are like thinking, they ju- I just arrived. I just came off an airplane from New York or something. And, and that's not really the case. I'm very much have uh, a foot in both countries. And my background is I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, and have always been around a, a very academic and, and intellectually interesting, curious, an environment that where curiosity and interesting things were always happening. And then started working for a British company in America. And they eventually got bought by a bigger British company and opening came up where I can move to England and basically did that. So that's what brought me to the UK. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk books for a second. So one of the things I love about your work is that, and I think it probably comes from your background about, about being curious and using your imagination and so on, is you have this wonderful way of taking what appear on the surface to be pretty disparate facts and weaving them into this tapestry that is just really interesting. It tells a really interesting story. You wrote a book called Audacious Goals, Remarkable Results, How an Explorer, an Engineer, and a Statesman Shaped the World. Now, you managed to tie together three pretty important people, uh, very historical characters that had very little to do with each other. First of all, we have Roald Admanson, who historical, you know, people that know anything about exploration have probably heard of this gentleman, okay? Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who most people have probably never heard of. And then, of course, we, we jump into uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who most people have heard of. How do these people relate? H- how did you pull these guys together? Well, actually, when my co-author and I started working on this book, and we we had this idea that uh, let's write about eleven interesting things that happened in the world in the last hundred to two hundred years, things that like the the laying of the transatlantic cable, like early 
aviation, uh, the getting to the North Pole, getting to the South Pole, getting through the Northwest Passage, getting to the top of Everest, getting to the moon. And we had lists and lists of things. And we ultimately narrowed it down to 11 things. And that included things like the building of the Panama Canal, the building of the Suez Canal, the, uh, the national parks. And when we started looking at this list, we started realizing there are several names that kept reappearing. When we started making spreadsheets and saying, well, what's the thing? What's the date? Who was involved? What was the outcome of it? Because also when you start looking at railways, the early railways, when you start looking at you know, the first tunnel under a flowing river. So like, for example, you're going from uh, New Jersey, where I grew up, to New York City. You're going through the Holland Tunnel, the Lincoln Tunnel. You know, how do you build these tunnels under, under rivers? It's like all these things just fascinated us. And what happened was we realized on these spreadsheets where, where certain names kept reappearing. You had Theodore Roosevelt who was instrumental in the building of the Panama Canal and also the national parks. You had Isambard Kingdom Grinnell, who, as you said, is, is not known at all in America or elsewhere, except in Britain. He is a household name in Britain. And in fact, in year 2002, there was a survey done that was done, it was a television show, and it was one of these reality type shows where each week they'd have several presenters presenting about famous people, because the goal was to pick who was the most famous Britain who ever lived. And so you have a person spending, spending 20 minutes talking about Churchill, a person spending 20 minutes talking about Darwin, a person spending 20 minutes talking about Shakespeare. And it's just a wonderful show. And at the end of the about five or 10 episodes of the show, there was a poll done where you vote, vote you, know, you call in and you vote. Um, and Isambard Kingdom Brunel came second. He came above Darwin. He came above Newton, came above John Lennon. And, and you wonder, who was this guy? because he's not known outside of Britain, but he was instrumental on railways, instrumental. He had built the first tunnel under the flowing, under flowing river. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a little bit if we get into that topic. Uh, he was very influential in bridge building and in shipbuilding. And it's just this just incredible guy who just did all these amazing things. And then you have Roald Amundsen, who was first through the Northwest Passage and first to the South Pole. And the Northwest Passage is... For 400 years, people have been seeking a sea route to go from Europe to Asia. And it used to be, if you went to Europe to Asia, you basically either went down to the bottom of Africa and sailed across that way, or you sailed across the bottom of South America and sailed that way. But people thought, well, gee, you could actually, if you only got a map and look at the northern Canada, you, you should be able to find a sea route through all the ice and little islands and things like that that are across northern Canada and get from Europe to Asia. And people have been trying for 400 years. And the most famous explorers in the, in, in the world have tried, and then some died in the process of trying to get there. And um, Amundsen was the first to sail a ship through. So you had these three people. And at one level, they're disparate people. On another level, they each achieved two remarkable things, at least two remarkable things in disparate fields. So Panama Canal and National Parks. Northwest Passage and South Pole, the tunnel that that Brunel built, and the uh, the railways, and you and it's sort of like saying, what was it that made these guys tick? Many people have done fascinating things and amazing things in one field, but few have done it in two disparate fields, and I think that's what really made it made the book, made our interest. And uh, I want to have the first sentence of the book being, this is not the book we intended to write. But our, every editor, we, we use three editors at different stages of the writing, and uh, uh, and none of them like that idea. 
So what was it? I mean, what, what was it you found that characterized these individuals, that gave them whatever it required to operate in very different fields, to achieve the things they achieved, which by any measure have been literally earth-changing. I mean, in, in the cases of canals, for, I mean, they physically changed the world. What, what did you find? There were a number of things, uh, characteristics about them, one of which was they were all detail people, which is actually contrary to what we say today. Today, we think leaders should be above the detail. They should be uh, above that, that level. And yet, each one of them, whether it's Teddy Roosevelt, whether it was Brunel, whether it was Roald Amundsen, they were they were very much into the detail, and knowing the detail enabled them to do that. And another element was they felt that was their destiny. In fact, there's there's a wonderful story, and there's wonderful stories for each of them in the, in this regard about it being their destiny. Isabel Kingdom Brunel was not the first to build a railway, or the first to conceive a railway. There was already a railway existing in England that went from Manchester to Liverpool. And he goes on this railway and he's like, at this stage, uh, he's like 21 years old. He's, he's an engineer of, of some repute because they've been working on the, on the Thames tunnel, which I'll talk about a, a little bit later. And he's um, on this train and it's, it's, it's rickety and it's, it's noisy and it's, it's unpleasant being there. And from a young age, from the age of four, he could draw a perfect circle freehand. And so a skill that he taught himself and he's sitting on this train trying to draw this perfect circle. And it's like in the Brunel archives in, in Britain there, you can see this, it's like, it's this terribly drawn circle. He's like, one day someone needs to build a railway where I can sit there with a cup of coffee and it will be perfectly stationary and you can draw and you can write and you can think and you can do all these things and, and, and it's a pleasant experience. And he says, and that person's me. And he's like 21, so he goes, that's me. And I mean, same situation, Roald Amundsen is 17 years old. The most famous explorer, Norwegian explorer of, the, of that time was, was a, a guy named Friedrich Nansen. And Nansen had just crossed Greenland. He's the first person to have led an expedition to cross Greenland. He comes into uh, that expedition that is so successful and it's celebrated. And Amundsen with the thousands of other people are standing on the docks at uh, what was, it wasn't called Oslo at the time, but it was, it was Oslo, the capital city was called Christiana in Norway. And uh, seeing Amundsen arrive and, and the celebrations and everything. And he's sitting there going, at 17 years old, going like, not only had he decided he had wanted to be explorer with his life, but he's like, I'm going to be the first one to sail the Northwest Passage. He's like, that's my destiny. That is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set my life to do that task. And, and same with, with, with Roosevelt. Early on, when he was still a student at Harvard, he was writing books about the, the Navy and the importance of, of naval warfare. People have been wanting to build a canal across Panama since Balboa discovered that Panama is pretty narrow, like 40 miles wide, and that you could somehow find waterways or something to connect them. And people are like, could you find waterways? They couldn't do that. And in the 1700s, 1800s, people were looking at building canals, and but no one had really attempted it. And Roosevelt knew if you could do that, you could change the world. And you could change the world in a great way for America. And so when he becomes president, he's 42 years old. He's vice president. because McKin And when McKinley shot, he becomes the youngest president. At that point, the youngest person to ever become president. He's 42 years old. The first thing is, he's like, hey, we're going to build the Panama Canal. It's like, because that he knows what that's going to be. And it's like, it's just his destiny. It's like, this is my destiny. I'm president now. I can make this happen. 
And this is after eight years of the French trying to build a Panama Canal and failing miserably. And, so, and he's like, you know, my administration, we're going to do this. It's, this is just remarkable people. The other thing was they never stopped. Once they had a big achievement, their, their, their idea wasn't, I'm going to put my feet up. And when you translate that into modern thinking, we think, oh, I'm going to get to the age of 60, 65. I'm going to put my feet up. I'm going to retire. I'll be happy. And, and these guys kept going and going, 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 and they, they just never stopped. Yeah, these are serious lessons for modern leaders, right? I mean, these are these are the kinds of things that leaders need to take a certain amount of inspiration from, not because all leaders should go build the modern equivalent of the Panama Canal, but they should they should see their mission as as an unending important inspirational role going in their own organizations, I would think. Yes, exactly. And I think one of the things that that struck us in writing this as well was these people were constantly told it can't be done. In fact, at one point we were going to title the book, It Can't Be Done, but it seemed too much of a negative title. But to a very great degree, when when you take something like the tunnel under the Thames, and just want to explain a little bit about this, which is no one had ever built a tunnel under a flowing river. And the Thames at that point was the primary means of transport uh, around London. Basically, nowadays, you look at the Thames, just like you look at any river, it's sort of used for pleasure craft. Whereas back then, that was the way you brought goods in. The Port of London was the most vibrant port in the world. Uh, you basically, it was just chock full of, of boats. And the biggest problem they had was unloading boats on, and getting goods from one side. The, the docks were on one side. They had to get goods to the other side. And you couldn't build any more bridges because you couldn't you couldn't block the the traffic of the river for weeks or months or years on end across the, all the world. Supplies were coming through London to go elsewhere, and so the idea was we'll build a tunnel. And people tried and failed again, failed miserably. And Brunel comes in. His father was was a leading engineer, uh, one of the most famous engineers at the time, and his father uncovers this way of building what's called a tunneling shield, which is a, um, a, a metal device that would prevent the silt and sand and everything you're digging through from collapsing the tunnel on top of the, build, the people digging the tunnel. And actually the tunneling shield, that same concept has been used to build every single tunnel ever built ever since that goes under a flowing river. So you're talking about the Channel Tunnel, you're talking about the Holland Tunnel, the Lincoln Tunnel, any tunnel uh, that is fundamentally a board tunnel under a river, they're using the same fundamental technique. Yeah, they're using more modern equipment. And, it, and it's just such a phenomenal story. And he always gets killed in the tunnel numerous times. And, and, and it's just, uh, just in, uh, yeah. And people said to them, you'll never build, you know, 50 of the leading engineers of the, of the day said, you'll never build a tunnel under, under the river. And they did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Watch me. <laughs> Watch it. And oh, and just to put this into into context, because it's such a remarkable achievement, is the tunnel still in use today? It's one of it's used by the London Underground. So actually, the London Underground trains run through it. Uh, like fourteen million people are traveling on London Underground trains through it every year, and it's considered the most watertight of all, all the tunnels under the Thames. Even the modern ones have been built. And it's not been very much changed from when it was first built. And the other remarkable thing, when you talk about the aperture of the tunnel, so the aperture just being the, the hole that's being dug, 
if you looked at the biggest tunnels ever built under rivers, even today with all the modern equipment, it would be in the top 10 biggest apertures. We don't, we don't build tunnels. Like the Channel Tunnel is, is three tunnels going between England and France, but none of them, none of those tunnels are at as big a hole dug through the water under in the silt and sand than was built in the Thames Tunnel in the 1840s. It's just, it's, these things are just unbelievable with these achievements. And that's what's so fun about writing about them was, was they were defying the odds of everyone telling them it can't be done, everyone telling them if, if you build it, you'll, you, you'll die in the process. And Isambard Kingdom Brunel almost did die numerous different times. Roald Amundsen came near death all the time. It's like, all these guys, it's just like, that's what makes it interesting. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, there's a there's the assumption that you know if the tunnel doesn't collapse on you, then Caisson's disease is gonna is gonna take care of you, and you know that'll be the end of you. And I look at the modern technology, whether it's the you know the boring company that Elon Musk founded, or you know the the company that was founded to dig the the tunnel with those gigantic machines that basically are on a suicide mission because at the end of the digging they they bury themselves in the ground and that's the end of them. And they didn't have anything like that. They had they didn't have machines to do this. And yet, to your point, they built the largest, the large, you know, something much larger than that. I mean, that's extraordinary. It is. It and, and that's what makes the story so fun, is that that there there's each each one is such a massive achievement. And you get into things like um getting to the South Pole. I have people didn't believe that you could actually get to the South Pole and and Amundsen's who had wanted to go to the North Pole. And but when Cook and Perry both claimed that they had each gone to the North Pole on separate occasions, actually neither of them did. Later, it's been proved, proven. But that the fact that he's he's thinking, well, if I can't get to the North Pole. I'm going to turn my ship around and head down to the South and challenge Captain Scott for the South Pole because Captain Scott was going there. It was like his uh, expedition, and he set up a quite a, a remarkable expedition to get there. And I was just like, well, okay, this is my de- you know if I can't do X can't do the North Pole, I'm going to go do Y, which is the South Pole, and, and just, and then then does it, and and does it uh, very, very well. But that's not to denigrate the challenges and risks that um, Amundsen took in doing that. And the same with, with the challenges and risks he took in going through the Northwest Passage, because the Northwest Passage, people are like, you'll never see a ship through there, or it's going to be all iced up. It's you know, and, and Amundsen says, well, not only will I do this, but I'm going to take a small ship. And people are like, that, that's just absolutely crazy. There's no way you can get a small ship through if these ice structures, if you can't get a large ship through. And after Sir John Franklin and had two large ships and uh, 129 men, and they all perished in the process of doing this and the ship sank. And, and, and here, here's uh, Amundsen coming in, you know, I can, I can do it. And, and I think one of the things that that struck us in doing the book as well was when I talked about being detailed people, Amundsen knew more about the Northwest Passage, all of the expeditions that had failed, everything that had been attempted before he set out. These people knew the nth amount. They were the, the world's expert on what they were doing. So they didn't undertake things lightly. They didn't like randomly just go, oh, I'm going to achieve this. They really knew what they were doing. Just like Teddy Roosevelt knew, as you know, everyone knows, he was, he was a cowboy. He lived in the West. He had his ranch. He had a lot of experience about what the parks were, because there were already four national parks by the time he became president. But he also knew 
the land to a great degree of what sorts of things could be preserved and then set about how then the challenge is how do you do that with legislation yeah of course i mean you know the, the old expression chance favors the well prepared right i mean th- that you know clearly clearly the case with the south pole and and obviously roosevelt as well it's fascinating yeah and that's what that's what makes it so fun is that that and and then pulling out lessons from modern living about things about the they had this tremendous passion for the projects they had an ability to say this is the goal and nothing's going to stop me getting that goal and but thinking about they also hit tremendous amounts of adversity i mean it's like interesting with with roosevelt digging the panama canal because the french came in and they they were built trying to build the canal in the late 1800s and and as i said they, they it was a disaster it was it was just the economically unviable they weren't making a lot of progress they were digging dirt and it was clear that they were just going to go bankrupt trying to do this and the, the company that was doing it and and uh, the investors. And, and it really was one of the most worst financial situations ever to undertake a company. Like everyday French people who had invested their own money into this company lost their money. They lost, you know, lost life savings and things like that. And into this, Roosevelt becomes president. He goes, well, we're going to build Panama Canal. And they set up engineers and commissions and different things to do this. And he's like, make the dirt fly. Like, all we're going to do, we're going to send them bigger diggers. We're American, like we can do this stuff. Right? We're, we're sending bigger diggers and we're just going to dig faster and dig better, right? Because the idea was to build a, a sea level canal, to build a canal that you just dig a big trench and the Atlantic Ocean and Pacific Ocean fill it. Just like they did with the Suez Canal. You basically dig a big trench and it fills it. Well, Panama's not like the same as the Middle East. and uh, you've got a set of mountains. You've got this very heavy clay. It's basically a rainforest, a jungle. It's like you know, there's yellow fever that's rife throughout Panama at that time. And you basically had a situation where digging faster was not the problem. And I think it's one of the most fascinating things that came out of the book was the digging wasn't the problem. The problem was what do you do with the spoil? What do you do with the stuff you're digging out? And it so the problem actually turned out it's not a digging problem, it's a railway problem. How do you put the dirt onto railway cars and cart it away? So they realized ultimately, one of the one of the, the lead engineer goes up to Roosevelt and says to him, there's no way, I mean, there's, there's just not, it's not possible. Even though we can, we've solved lots of different sorts of problems here with digging and everything like that, it is not possible to do this as a sea level canal. You have to do it with locks. You've got to build locks on either end. And basically, Roosevelt had to go back to Congress and say, egg on his face. It's like, you know, my idea, all the money we've, we've put into this, everything we've done, the biggest land deal ever done in the history of the world up to that point was to acquire the land to do the digging in Panama and to buy the French equipment and all the stuff that the French had done before that. A lot of that was wasted. A lot of that was basically, they said, no, if you're going to build locks, you've got to build locks, you've got to build dams, you got to build the biggest dam in the world. You've got to build locks that are three times, five times bigger than any lock ever built. And we're going to build 12 of them. It's like, these are, and these were just, you know, and, and he's like, okay, you know, we've got the goal. We're going to go do it. And so what if I've got to take a lot of crap from, sorry, a lot of grief from the press and everything that, uh, but that's the, that's this, the, the nature of these guys, which they're sort of like not daunted by big projects, things that are going to take years and years and years. Well, and you said at the beginning that one of the things that characterized all three of these people was they just didn't stop. 
they they did not allow failure to be part of the equation. They they basically said there is a way around every one of these things, and we will find it, and we will succeed. I mean, the, the concept of failing just it just wasn't part of their DNA, apparently. No, there's a, there's a, there's a Brunel story that that uh, one of the Brunel stories I really loved was was he, he he's commissioned. So again, at a very young age, so he, he's now like having been on this this railway with this terrible lot. Uh, uh, ride that they had, which was, and, and he's like, I can do better than this, ends up getting the commission to build the London to Bristol railway. And that would be the longest line in the world. And ever the longest line ever built at that point in time. Between London and Bristol, you might think, well, that's a fairly level set of ground. But actually, those who know the English countryside, actually, it's quite undulating. There are lots of rivers and streams throughout it and marshlands and different sorts of terrain. And Basically, what Brunel knew as an engineer was the, you've got to make the line as level as possible because to get the train to go as fast as possible. And what Brunel perfected was the concept of intercity rail. The concept of, I want to get from London to Bristol. You don't want to wander over the countryside, stopping in various towns and, and things. You want a pretty straight line, like a fast run from London to Bristol. So he surveys the land on horseback in 10 weeks. And even like with all the topographic maps we'd have today and satellite imagery, you probably couldn't find a better line than he found on horseback. That in itself is remarkable. He was working also like 18 to 20 hours a day doing this stuff. And then he finds this line, but in amongst this, between the towns of Bath and Chippenham, is a hill. You can't dig it out. Now, there's some areas of Britain where they could like, sort of like the landscape, they could dig it out because it's just basically dirt. And even quite big excavations they could do to keep the, the track fairly level. Here, he's like, we've got to go through this. It's a more solid structure. And he calculates it's going to take five years to do. We'll have teams starting at either end. And this is, again, you're talking like the 1840s. And he's like, we're going to start two teams, one at either end. And it's going to take five years. And no one's ever dug a tunnel. At this stage, still, the, the Thames Tunnel wasn't even finished yet. And he's saying we can build this tunnel. And no one's ever built a tunnel anywhere near the, the size of this. And, and they do. And they build this tunnel. It takes five years. And they literally start from either end. And they meet in the middle. And they're only off by two inches. It's mind-boggling. And the line's still in use today. How do you achieve things? great things? It's like, you know, look what these guys did. They just didn't stop. They, they, they focus on detail. They, they didn't listen to the naysayers and the people telling them they can't do it. My guest on this episode is Brad Borkin, the co-author of Audacious Goals, Remarkable Results, How an Explorer, an Engineer, and a Statesman Shaped Our Modern World, and When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme Decision-Making Lessons from the Antarctic. We thought we'd take a break here in the middle and give you a chance to get a glass of water. We'll see you when you return. All right, let's shift gears. Uh, you have uh, more than what I would call a passing interest, passion for, et cetera, Antarctica of all things. By anyone's measure, not the easiest place in the world to get to, both in terms of distance and also because of that pesky passage you have to get across to get to the continent. Where did this passion come from? And then we'll talk about your book that uh, kind of came from that interest. It came from growing up in New Jersey, where we Cat and for I mean you're up in Vermont and everyone knows what, what kids know that you know if it snows a lot you get a snow day and my brothers and I had uh, there was a light in the back garden in the backyard and we could turn the light on from a switch in the house and we knew that if we turn it on 
you'd see this. If it was snowing, you'd see the snow coming down. If it was snowing in the evening, you're hoping school would be canceled the next day. And I think it was that concept that always got me fascinated by snow. One of the things that came from that is another book called When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme Decision-Making Lessons from the Antarctic. Very different from the one we just discussed. Walk us through this story, because this, this is a really powerful and important thing. And it, it ties in in the sense that this is yet another set of lessons for leadership couched in a, in a format that makes it very presentable, very, very interesting, and very relevant. Uh, to tell, tell me a little bit about the book. Sure. So I've had this interest in Antarctica and started attending Antarctic conferences. And what I realized was lots of people are writing books about the expeditions, Scott's expeditions, Shackleton's expeditions, Amundsen's expeditions. People are writing books about the explorers or some of the men or some of the different things that were happening in Antarctica in the early 1900s. And what I realized was no one ever was writing a book about the decision-making, which is actually the most exciting part of it was they were making life and death decisions all the time, coming near death all the time, but very rarely ever dying. And I thought, wouldn't it be exciting to write a book that was just the life and death decisions. What were the decisions and what did they decide? And is that the same decision we would make today? And trying to get the reader into the action and be like, you know, not so much saying, well, what would you have done? But hinting, like get the reader to think about, well, what if you were in that situation, if you were out on the ice, would you have made the same decision they made? Because they didn't always make great decisions, but there was a lot that we can learn from them. And the, the people we focused on were Shackleton, who led two expeditions to Antarctica, Scott, who led two expeditions to Antarctica and ended up dying in Antarctica, Amundsen, who, as we talked about, went to the South Pole and had this very successful expedition, and Mawson, who was an Australian, who, who led some expeditions there as well. So it's a, it's a, a fascinating group of people and um, fascinating group, set of adventures as well. So but before we continue, let me interject and ask a question. Now, you, you've spent time down there. What is it beyond the obvious? What is it about Antarctica that makes it a place that lends itself to uh, the reality that bad decisions can be truly lethal? <laughs> One of it is, is getting there. As we said, the, the seas are the roughest seas in the world. So you've got challenges with ships hitting icebergs or having other catastrophes and or just hitting storms and, and getting sunk. And even today, I mean, going down today, you still have ships that can get uh, damaged by the ice. And, and we came very close to icebergs. And, and it's a tricky place to, to sail ships around. The challenges on the ice are that partly it's the cold. It's the unending cold. It's, there's, no, there's never a place for the early explorers can actually get out of the cold. And the cold isn't so bad in the summertime. I mean, yes, it's, it, summertime is probably like Vermont in the winter, but the winter time where you have no sunlight for you know, five, six months of the year, you have no sunlight, but you have, might have moonlight, you have stars and things, but it's depressing and it's, it's, it's intellectually challenging for, for people overwintering. So that was an issue. And basically, you have snow blindness, you have scurvy, they don't understand what's, where scurvy came from, you've got, um, you could fall into a crevasse. <laughs> and that's just some of the numerous different, different things that, that can get you in, in the process. And um, all of those sorts of things afflicted 
the, the early explorers. I mean, people thought of grasses, some survived, some didn't. There's, um, you know, they've got some scurvy, some died, some didn't. And one of the things that, that was throughout our book is we had a phrase called no communication as far as you can shout. And this was one of the most remarkable things was that they really had no way of communicating to each other to get help if they were in, in need. And so you're very much on your own. All your decision-making was your own or your team's. What were the characteristics of success? I mean, what, what do people walk away with from the book in terms of learnings from these early explorers who, in fact, did either come back or did manage to communicate what, what their experiences were? Well, there, there's lots of wonderful stories that lead to, that lead to conclusions about decision-making and lead to conclusions about leadership and teamwork. One was that everything they did was in teams. And I think that was... That was uh, quite inspiring to my co-author and I, and because actually our next book is about teams. <laughs> and but the the fact that they worked in teams and they worked in teams that often had a leader and a second in command, and something we don't do in business today. I mean, we have a CEO and a COO in big businesses, but you don't really have like in small teams. Like I worked in, I was working for SAP, one of the uh, leading software companies. And I've worked most of my, my career was in software, working for the very large software companies like Oracle and SAP. And we'd have teams, but you just have the leader, the team leader or the department head. You didn't have a second in command, but yet the second command is a very important post. It enables interpersonal conflicts to be resolved without going to the leader. And it enables someone to be a, uh, a sounding board for the leader as well. Or someone also sometimes to communicate to the team members, it's, it is exceptionally valuable in business today, and yet we don't do it. And yet it was, and it was incredibly valuable to the, to the teams in Antarctica in the early 1900s. And it's the reason that teams survived as well as they did and achieved what they did. So what's next for Brad? Well, I'm working on several, several different books, <laughs> which is that I've got so many different projects on the, on the go at the same time. And I'm writing articles as well for some business magazines. And I also write articles for something called the Crisis Response Journal. So this is for people who respond to earthquakes and uh, floods and, and all the different natural disasters that happen around the world. You've got teams and teams of people, government agencies, uh, charity workers, care workers, medical people. That, and there's a magazine for them called the Crisis Response Journal. So I write articles for them and, uh, and bring lessons from the great explorers and from the people I study and, and try to give insights from them to, to the, the people doing this important work today. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, I'm working on three different books at the same time. One is about leadership, one's about teams, and one's about goals, but all couched in, in, in similar ways, bringing lessons from historical people and, and looking at insights from the, from the historical people and what we can learn from it from modern day decision making. I love your approach because there are so many books out there, as you know, about leadership, about teams, about decision making. But after a while, it's a, it's a buzz. You know, it's the same information couched kind of in slightly different ways. But after a while, it's, yeah, I've heard this before. I get it. But the context that your books provide is what makes them truly unique. That's what helps you rise above the noise. And I love it. I think it's a fascinating way to approach the subject matter. I, just, I think it's great. One of the most interesting stories is the most valuable lesson, because I brought this lesson into my own life, is Shackleton 
had set up an expedition called the Nimrod expedition, which was going, the goal was to get to the South Pole. So he had been on Scott's expedition earlier, which was called the Discovery Expedition. That didn't have the aim of getting to the South Pole. That was early in the early 1900s. It was one of the first expeditions. They just wanted to like say, hey, how do we how do we travel in Antarctica? How do we learn how to travel? They're funny stories, like they start out with thinking we have a three-man sleeping bag, we be warmer than a one-man sleeping bag. Right. But then they realize three men in a sleeping bag, one rolls over, you know, if you've been in a sleeping bag, you know, the whole thing sort of rolls, like no one got any sleep. They that's a bad idea. They so they've learned how to build tents that could be erected in a blizzard. They learned lots of different things about travel. And but on that expedition, Shackleton got scurvy and on the way back almost died. And so he gets back to Britain and he's like, I'm gonna set up my own expedition. I now know the basics of how to how to travel and and I'm going to fundraise and, and do that. And, and he sets spends two years fundraising, gets a ship, gets down to Antarctica, and figures out with three other men, they're they're manhauling, basically pulling a sledge, uh, because they use ponies, but the ponies died along the way. And and they, they end up having to make a hard, a very difficult decision. There was January 8th, 1909, and they were running out of food. They were had walked 700 miles out from the coast towards the South Pole. They've got 100 miles to go, 103 miles to go, and they're running out of food. They realize if they go onto the South Pole, they will die on the way back because they'll run out of food. And the question becomes, what do you do? Do you go to the South Pole and almost certainly die on the way back, uh, but you've achieved your goal, or do you turn back? It seems like a binary decision. It seems like you either go forward or go back. But Shackleton does something different. And I think that one of the most remarkable things that, and I'll explain why I brought this idea into my own life and how I did that and what people can learn from it, is he said, no, what we're going to do, we know we have to go back. But before we go back, we're going to leave the tent and sleeping bag behind and all the food and everything like that. Leave that all behind. We're going to just walk south as far as we can for one day and then plant the British flag, take some photographs, and then go back to camp. And then the next day set off. So they do that. They, they walk six miles further south. So now they're within 97 miles of the South Pole. And they go back to their encampment. And then the next day they start walking back. And they do almost die on the way back, actually. They got down to their final biscuits. And it's, like, it's a very exciting, very thrilling story about how they survived. And so why did they do that? And they did that to cross the 100-mile mark. That Shackleton reasoned that I'm not going to get my goal, but I can get something that is memorable. Crossing the 100-mile mark is better than going back to Britain and say, well, we got to 103 miles of the South Pole. There's this wonderful photograph of these men standing next to this flag, enormous flag planted in the snow, taking pride in the fact they didn't get their goal, but they got something that was memorable. And the way I turned this into my own career was I was working at SAP. I had a, a, a good career, but I was not at the level in SAP that I wanted to be, that I thought I could get to. And I was at my age, I thought I'm never going to get there. So I need to plant my flag in the snow and say, okay, if I can't do this, let me go do something different, you know, because Shackleton then is like, okay, we, rather than risking our lives and getting all the way to the South Pole and dying on the way back, let's go plant the flag and then go back and do something different. And so for me, it was like saying, hey, I'm going to plant my flag and go off and start writing some books because someone's got to write the book about decision-making in Antarctica. And it's just such a fantastic lesson for all of us. 
Yeah. And in so many ways, you put yourself in control of your own destiny. I mean, to use an overused phrase, but really what you did was you made a decision that said, I'm going to noodle through a definition of what I believe to be success. And I'm going to model that as my success. And so I think there are people who would have looked at what you did and say, well, he just gave up. No, that's, that's not giving up. That is taking the resources you have and redirecting them in a way that gives you the ability to have the impact you want to have in your life. And, and that's clearly what these people did going, I mean, people would, some people would look at it and say, oh, come on, another six miles, really? Yeah, but look what those six miles represented. That's the key. And how did he then take that and parlay that into future successes? I mean, that's the amazing thing about this. That's right. That's right. And I think that's, that's, it's a, such a valuable lesson for everybody. And there's so many lessons like that in, in, in both books. It's, it's, there's just lots and lots of different ways of looking at these different things. And, and, uh, and I, I, again, we could talk for hours about, about Scott's expeditions and, and Scott did a lot of valuable science. In fact, some of the studies that Scott's expeditions did in the early 1900s, we're now using modern methods to analyze his data. So all the modern AI methods and everything else we have for, for scientific analysis, we're able to go back to samples done in take taken from the early 1900s and and reanalyze them and come up with new new information about climate change and all sorts of different things. It's it's just great fun to talk about because sadly Scott and his team died, and there were some other people in Antarctica who who died in, on these expeditions. But for the most part, they all came near death all the time and very rarely ever died. And and I think that's that's what makes it so remarkable. Indeed. And you know, you talk to modern leaders today and they talk about risk taking. Really? <laughs> How close did you come to dying today? <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. As Brad and I closed in on the end of the interview, I asked him if he had any final thoughts that he wanted to share with us. Here's what he said. One of the challenges we had in writing the Audacious Goals Remarkable Results book, the one about the explorer, the engineer, and the statesman who shaped our modern world, was how to end it. How do you actually finish a book? What's, what's, what's your final chapter going to be? And here we are writing about Isambard Kingdom Brunel, one of the greatest British people who ever lived, as well as probably the greatest engineer who ever lived, writing about Roald Amundsen, one of the greatest Norwegians who ever lived, and one of the greatest explorers, and in my opinion, probably the, one of the greatest explorer who ever lived. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt, whether you love him or hate him, the reality was he was an influential, consequential guy in American politics and, and in the world. And he really brought America to the world stage with, by building the Panama Canal. And the national parks, his work on the national parks led to national parks that being built in over 120 countries around the world. So he was the first to really show that legislation can be used to protect land and preserve it for future generations. And he was a very great visionary in, in that, that ability to do that. So here you have these three fundamentally monumental epic guys it's like, what, how do you finish a book like that? And at about the same time, we're puzzling with my co-author and I are puzzling about this question. NASA launched a spacecraft, the Rover spacecraft to Mars, and it's about ready to land. The parachute opens. It's encoded with red and white stripes. And the announcer says, oh, by the way, there's a code in this. 
in the stripes, which then set off this international flurry of people who love doing puzzles and solving things, trying to figure out what does a code say? Well, what the code says is dare mighty things, which is a statement from a Teddy Roosevelt speech. The most important thing in life is to dare mighty things. Here we have a spacecraft being launched in 2021, but a statement that was made in like 1890, but this transcends more than a century. My guest has been Brad Borkin, the co-author with David Herzl of Audacious Goals, Remarkable Results, How an Explorer, an Engineer, and a Statesman Shaped Our Modern World, and When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme Decision-Making Lessons from the Antarctic. Thank you, Brad, for giving me the gift of your time. You can find his books at major bookstores on Amazon and at Audible. You can also learn more about Brad and his career as a writer and motivational speaker at extreme-decisions.com. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of The Natural Curiosity Project, and I just want to take a few additional seconds to thank you for the gift of your time. I started this program because I believe that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that the only thing that ties the episodes together is that each one covers a story that deserves to be told, and that each story is something that you should be curious about. I hope you enjoyed the journey we covered in this program, and if you did, Please take a couple of minutes to write a brief review wherever you get your podcasts. I cannot tell you how much it means and how valuable it is to have those reviews. From my heart, thank you. And I'll see you in the next episode.